Today we come to the 12th and final sermon in a series entitled Rebuild. I hope and pray that this study of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah has been edifying to you. I hope it's been beneficial to you. I can testify that the timeliness of this study has really refreshed my faith. God has galvanized my belief in him that we are his people sustained by his word. That God is one who is sovereign, which means he's in control of all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible. That regardless of the rubble that you see around you in your culture, God has the power to remove the rubble and replace it with righteousness. He has the capacity to take away all of the shame and replace it with his salvation. And so this study has just really just refreshed, galvanized my faith in the Lord uh, that his word truly does sustain us. So I'm asking you for one last time to take your Bible, turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Today I want to read in your hearing, Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 10 to 31. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, I ask for you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 13, I'll begin at verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials. I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithe of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms. And I made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant. Because these men were considered trustworthy, they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. They were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah. I said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. 
I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them. I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, and they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them. I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat, the Horonite. I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they defile the priestly office and the covenants of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign. I assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O oh my God. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The story of Nehemiah does not have a Hollywood ending. If it had a Hollywood ending, you would anticipate that Nehemiah would ride off into the sunset to the thunderous applause of the crowd. You would expect for the camera to then pan to that refortified wall without any gaps that had been rebuilt in a matter of 52 days. And you would expect for the camera to rest its final shot on the smiling faces of the people of God. For their lives have been rebuilt. Their lives have been renewed and revitalized. You would expect to see a smile of satisfaction on their face and joy from their hearts as it was pulsating out of their bodies. Yes, you would expect to find some type of scene like that had Nehemiah been written and approved by Hollywood executives. 
But the sacred script of Nehemiah was not approved by Hollywood executives. The sacred script of Nehemiah was written and approved by a holy God. You'll remember that Nehemiah was appointed as the governor of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas for approximately 12 years by King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah demonstrated tremendous leadership. Under his guidance, they were able to refortify the wall, uh, rebuild the city of God, and they were able to rebuild the people of God. There was sweeping revival and renewal under the administration of Nehemiah. But when you come to Nehemiah chapter 13, the very last chapter of the book, we are told that Nehemiah was told to come back to the royal court of Susa. He was there probably for at least a year, maybe longer. And then the final chapter of the book shows us what Nehemiah experiences when he returns to the sacred city of Jerusalem. Now, you would expect for the continuation of revival and renewal, you would expect for more houses to be rebuilt, you would anticipate more families to be reunited and revived, you would expect for more rubble to be removed, you would anticipate that more spiritual clutter would be cleared. But nothing of the sort is reality. In fact, when Nehemiah comes back, he does not find a portrait of faithfulness. Instead, he sees the jagged edges of unfulfilled commitments. When I get done reading Nehemiah chapter 13, I come to the closing verse of 31. I walk away with this idea that even for the life of a believer, sometimes that life is littered with good intentions and broken promises. Even for the life of the believer, sometimes a believer has a life that can be littered with good intentions and broken promises. In our final passage of the final chapter of Nehemiah, there are at least three broken promises. These broken promises have to do with finances and faith and family. First, there is a broken promise of unkept financial obligations. It begins in verse 10. When Nehemiah gets back to the sacred city of Jerusalem, he realizes that the Levites and the singers were not working in and through the temple. They were working in the fields. The reason this is significant is because the Levites and the singers were supposed to be the ones who took care of all of the daily business in and through the temple. And all of their needs were supposed to be met sufficiently by the people giving their tithes and offerings unto the Lord. As Nehemiah makes his way into the city, he sees that the Levites have now become farmers. Nothing wrong with being a farmer. Nothing wrong with hard work. It is a good thing for a Christian to be a hard worker. We ought to have the best ethics of anybody at the marketplace. But when Nehemiah sees this, he says, this is avoidable. This should not be. The Levites and the singers, they have work to do in and through the temple of God. And all of their needs should be met, not by uh, corporate downsizing where they had to be laid off from the temple and then put food on the table by being a farmer in their own family. No, their needs ought to be met by the giving of tithes and offerings for the people. And as the people were obedient to the promises that were made, there should have been more than enough to cover all of the needs 
of all the Levites and the priests and the singers. Oh, but Nehemiah realizes that the people had become negligent. What makes matters worse is that it was only a few chapters earlier, which signifies a few years earlier, in Nehemiah chapter 10, when the people made a renewed covenant with God. This renewed covenant was not an emotional whim. It was not based on somebody whipping up their uh, feelings and emotions in a worship service. No, it was rooted in the scripture. You'll recall that they had a Bible conference. Ezra was the preacher. He proclaimed God's word for six hours and nobody got bored. In the aftermath of that, the people were broken over their sin. They were aware of their sin. They responded in brokenhearted confession. Personally, they began to read the Bible for hours on end each day. And it led to hours of worship that they had individually and and corporately. They were people who understood God's word, who he was, what he expected of them. And, and a natural outflow of that is that they made promises to God. In chapter 10, they made promises with their finances. They said, God, we want to spend our money in a way that you approve. And so they said, we will not neglect the house of God. We will give our annual temple tax, which is a third of a shekel. Not only that, we will give our tithes, the first fruit of our income, and we will also give offerings on top of that. Most people believe that in the days of Nehemiah, most individuals gave approximately 30% or more of their income to the life, work, and ministry of God's church there at the temple. And so people were very generous but when Nehemiah sees that the Levites are in the field, and the singers are the farmers, he says, what in the world is going on? He comes and he gathers the officials together and he asks them a question. Why have you neglected the house of God? That question is specifically tied to their declaration at the end of chapter 10 when they made a renewed covenant to God when they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. So here in chapter 13, he flips that question on its head and he says, so why have you now neglected the house of God? You made a vow that you would not neglect God's house and here we are just a few years later and you are actively neglecting the house of God. You're not giving the temple tax. You're not bringing in your tithes. You're not giving your offerings. In fact, you had to downsize and now all the Levites and the singers, they're not employed by the temple anymore because there's not enough money to meet their needs. Now they've got to go out and they've got to work in the fields. So why have you neglected the house of God? Now, before we get mad at the people living in the days of Nehemiah, can I just ask you a question? Have you ever made a vow to God that you would not do something, and then later on, you actually do it? You ever made a vow like that, like the people of Nehemiah, when they said, we vow not to neglect the house of God, and only years later, they were neglecting the house of God? Have you ever made a vow that you will stop cussing, only months later, for you to start cussing again? You ever made a vow to stop drinking, only to start drinking again? You ever made a vow to stop neglecting prayer, only to neglect prayer years later? You ever made a vow 
to stop looking at pornography only months later to start looking at pornography again? You ever made a vow not to commit adultery only you find yourself committing adultery? You ever made a vow not to be greedy and yet you find yourself extremely greedy and materialistic? You ever made a vow that you would not neglect evangelism but you now cannot remember the last person that you introduced to Jesus? Have you ever made a vow to God of something that you would not do and only years later you find yourself doing the very thing that you said you would not do? Have you ever done anything like that? I only see a few heads nodding north and south. But I venture to say just about every heart is beating north and south. That in this moment you understand there are times, yes, I have made commitments to God. I've made promises unto him. I have vowed that I would not neglect. And here I am a few months, a few years later, and I'm doing the thing that I vowed I would never do. That's what's going on in this passage. They vowed that they would not neglect their financial commitment unto the Lord. And Nehemiah comes into town and he sees that the Levites and the singers are in the field because of the negligence of God's people. And he asks the question, why have you neglected the house of God? It was Warren Wearsby who said that when it comes to this idea of generosity, the giving of your tithes and offerings. It is not only a thermostat, but it's also a thermometer of spiritual vitality. It's a thermostat because your generosity helps to set the temperature. Oh, but it's also a thermometer for it reveals the temperature of your spiritual vitality. Generosity is not the only vital sign for the life of the believer, but it is one. Not only is there generosity, but you could also talk about church attendance, ministry involvement, eagerness in evangelism, willingness to do ministry, your commitment to prayer and to scripture reading. All of these things help to gauge the spiritual vitality of a born-again believer. But in our passage, Warren Wearsby is exactly right. It's the generosity or lack thereof that determines and acts like a thermostat and a thermometer. Because it reveals that they're not as spiritually vital as they thought they were or as they once were. I've been told what you've been taught that Jesus spoke more about money than any other single subject. And since that's true, I wonder why. Why would Jesus always talk about money in his parables? Always talk about how we handle stewardship in our life. The stewardship of our time and our resources and the things that God has given us. Why would he always talk about money and generosity? And the reason being is because Jesus understood that far too many of us are gripped by greed. We're possessed by our possessions. And the best way to loosen the grip of greed upon your life is to give. That when you and I give, it somehow loosens that grip that has a chokehold on our life in greed. So Jesus spoke frequently about it because he understood that it is both a thermostat and a thermometer. Jesus said that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. It's at this moment that I need to commend you. I need to praise you. I need to thank you for your generosity. I've said it before when we read uh, Nehemiah chapter 10, but it bears repeating here in Nehemiah chapter 13, that when we think about your generosity here at First Baptist Church Pelham, I can tell you 
that your faithfulness and stewardship has outpaced the record-setting pace of 2020 here in 2021. So you have put us on track to meet or exceed our $3 million budget here in 2021. And not only that, but in the midst of COVID-19 and a global pandemic, you have continued to give faithfully to the D&D Challenge. So that since inception of D&D Challenge in 2015, you have now given in excess of $2 million. Praise the Lord. $2 million to help reduce debt and raise disciples. And all of that is because of your generosity. Now, some of my preacher friends would caution me in this moment, and they would say, do not praise people for their generosity. Because if you praise them, they will stop giving. But I want to say to you that I know you. And you don't give just to meet a budget. You don't give just to keep the lights on. You give so that the gospel will go forth and the footprint of this church upon the world will be ever expanding. That we can declare the gospel and by your generosity, this gospel can literally go to every far reach of the planet and that we can send mission teams, we can help support mission endeavors, we can do things not only here, there, but everywhere because of your generosity. You don't give for the applause of men, you give for the applause of God. You don't need for me to stay on this platform and give you an attaboy. You need for God to peer into your checkbook, look into your bank account, and see how you spend your money and how you are generous with your resources for God to say, attaboy and attagirl, I'm so proud of you. You need for God to do that, not me. So when you understand that all of your resources, everything you have at your disposal is a gift of God, there's no way you can outgive God. That God has been so good to you that the least you can do is give to him your first fruit. Because you don't give to meet a budget and you don't give to keep lights on. You give out of obedience to the call of God upon your life. You give so the gospel will go forth so that many men, women, boys, and girls have the opportunity to hear the good news and respond in faith. So this morning, I want to commend you. If it's at this moment that you begin to feel the rearing back of a backhand, watch out. What I said a few weeks ago, I'll repeat now, that whether we are living in 2021 uh, or, 20, or 1981, I think the stat that I'm about to tell you is probably consistently true. That in this faith family, 80% of the revenue and income comes from 20% of people. So, I just have a holy hunch that God is using this sermon series to inspire and motivate and nudge some of you to give for the very first time. Maybe you're part of that 80% and you just don't give much or you don't give at all. You clearly don't give all that you could. Um, and maybe this sermon series, God is just nudging you. God is just prompting you. God is just pinching you a little bit to say, hey, I've been good to you, haven't I? I have blessed your socks off. Everything you have is because of me. You can't outgive me. So in a, as an act of obedience, as an act of faith, I want you to give to the life and work of First Baptist Church, Pelham. It has long been questioned, how much should a person give? And I don't know that there's a good answer to that. I do like what I read a few years ago where the author just simply said, um, I've got to give God more than I can spare. 
somehow my generosity ought to pinch me a little bit. That there might be something that I want to do, want to purchase, want to afford, but my generosity to God and his church prohibits me from enjoying that. And so my generosity just has to pinch a little bit. I'm not telling you your generosity has to cut off your right arm. I'm not saying your generosity has to have a a, a fatal wound of your head. I'm just saying that your generosity ought to pinch just, just a little bit. And I wonder this morning, church, does your generosity pinch a little bit? Or do you just simply give what you can spare and give to the Lord just leftovers? In the days of Nehemiah, apparently the people weren't even giving leftovers. They had become negligent. They had stopped giving the temple tax. They had stopped giving their tithes and offerings. They had stopped giving all the things that they were uh, commanded and commissioned to give. And because of that, there was corporate downsizing in the church. So the Levites had to be laid off and the singers had to be laid off and they're working there in the field. And Nehemiah says, this should not be. Do not, do not break your promises of finances. Secondly, there's a broken promise of faith. It's in verse 15 and following. It's the broken promise of unkept Sabbath obedience. He says, beginning in verse 15, the men of Judah were treading the winepress on the Sabbath. They were loading down their donkeys with grain and wine and figs on the Sabbath. The men of Tyre were bringing in fish to the marketplace to sell on the Sabbath. They were coming in and the marketplace looked just the same on the Sabbath as it did on Tuesday. There was nothing distinctively different about the Sabbath in the hearts and lives and calendar activity of God's people. And Nehemiah becomes frustrated. He becomes frustrated because they were neglecting their promise of the Sabbath. They had made promises to God uh, earlier in chapter 10 that they would remember the Sabbath day. They would keep it holy. That's an echo of Exodus chapter 20 where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments from God. And God etches with his very finger upon tablets of stone the ten uh, uh, commands, the, the ten uh, uh, commands that he has for his people. And one of those top ten is that you are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, why is God so concerned about you keeping the Sabbath? Well, it's not for God's sake. It's for your sake. It's not that God needs it, but you need it. I mean, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, not because he was tired. He rested as an example to you and to me. That he said that you are the apex of his creation. But even though you are the the cherry on top of creation, even though you're the quintessential aspect of creation, you were not created to go 24-7 nonstop. If you do that, eventually you'll give out. You, you need a day that's different. A day that's different, yes, for rest, but a day that's different so that you can worship God. Because every seven days, you need to be reminded of how good God is. 
Every seven days, you need to be reminded of of what he's done for you, what he expects of you, and the grace that he's poured out upon you. So you need a weekly reminder that God is good because God knows that some of us, his very people, we have spiritual amnesia and spiritual Alzheimer's. Sometimes we act as if God doesn't exist. Sometimes we live our life as if that God doesn't exist. But God does exist, and he is good, and he is great, and he's worthy of all your affection and your praise. He is worthy for you to come in his house on his day with his people and exalt his holy name. See, we do this because we need it. It's not that God needs this. We need this. And what I find interesting is that in the days of Nehemiah, and even further back, there was no other people group that had a day set aside like the people of Yahweh. Oh, sure, the other pagans, they encouraged their people to worship their false deities as frequently as you possibly could. But there was no day that was set aside where everything on the calendar was remarkably different than every other day of the week. Only the followers of Yahweh did that. Why? Not only because they needed it, but it was a witness to a watching world. Hey, there's something different about God's people. They act differently. They worship differently. They even organize their calendar differently. Every seventh day, they gather together and they worship. They refrain from working. They focus their attention upon the Lord. It is remarkably different what they do on the Sabbath than any other religious group or religious people. See, God did this not only because you need it, but also as a witness so that other people would know that you follow him. Now, about 2,000 years ago or so, the Christians said, hey, I know that historically, uh, we always worshiped on Sabbath, seventh day, Saturday. But Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. How many of you think it would be a good idea for us to worship every seven days, but let the seventh day be the first day? How many of you think it would be a good idea for us to come together every seven days on the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, to remind us all that the tomb is still empty? And I don't know if they put it to a vote, but if they had, everybody said, that's a great idea. Let's worship on Sunday. Let's call it the Lord's Day. This is not our Christian Sabbath with all of its rules and regulations, but there is something significantly different about when God's people gather on the Lord's day to remind each other, to remind ourselves that the tomb is empty. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of the message that Pilate couldn't stop him, that the grave couldn't hold him, that death couldn't keep him, and the devil could not defeat him. For on the third day, Jesus burst forth from the grave with all power in his hands. He was victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And the same spirit that had the power to raise Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that resides inside of you every day of the week, every single second of the day. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to be reminded that that powerful spirit resides inside of all of us. Because sometimes we act as if, sometimes we live as if Jesus is still in the tomb. 
Sometimes we live as if his resurrection doesn't have a daily different impact upon our life. And I'm here to tell you that I need to be reminded that the tomb is empty. For that same power that raised dead Jesus back to life is the same power that seals my salvation both now and forevermore. And not just for me, but for all who believe upon him. So we gather on the first day of the week for a reason. It's not a bad idea to worship other days. It's not a bad idea for us to gather as a faith family on other significant moments and on our calendar. But but every Lord's Day, there's something powerful about being in God's house, isn't there? And it's not only, it's not so much that God needs this. God doesn't need this. He's God all by himself. But you need this. And I need this. And it's a good thing for us to gather and worship, to be reminded that we have the power of the universe at our disposal. The same power that spoke and the world came into existence is the same power that seals your salvation. Now friends, I don't know about you, but I'm constantly bombarded by messaging of this culture that tries to undermine and contradict the truth and authority of scripture. And it's just helpful for me to come in God's house on God's day and just to be reminded the tomb is empty. It kind of refocuses everything. It recalibrates my spirit. It rejuvenates my soul. It gives me a new, renewed purpose in living. So Nehemiah comes at the end of chapter 13 and he asks the people, why did you neglect the Sabbath day? Why this wickedness? Are you so short-minded? Don't you know that the reason we we found ourselves in this predicament in our culture is because we abandoned the observation of the Sabbath? That's why God permitted the Babylonians to come in and cart us off for some 70 years. Don't you remember? It's because of our disobedience, because of our negligence. We act as if God didn't exist. And God said, I'm not a pushover, enough's enough. And he employed the services of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's army came and carted us off. Why, Nehemiah asks, are you now stirring up more wrath? Simply obey. Don't just have a good intention and a broken promise, but remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. There was a third broken promise. It had the to do with family, it was the broken promise of unholy family faithfulness. It begins in verse 23 and following. Nehemiah discovered that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod. They'd even married some women that were Ammonites and Moabites. Last week, we heard that Moses said in Deuteronomy, do not permit an Ammonite or a Moabite into the sacred assembly. And not only did they let them in the sacred assembly, but now they are marrying them. Now they are giving their sons to Moabite women. Now they are taking uh, Moabite men for their daughters. They are marrying women from Ashdod and other pagan places. And Nehemiah asked the question, why are you permitting this to happen? The children that were produced from this union They didn't even know the language of God. They they were raised on the language of Ashdod. 
They knew the values of the Moabites. They, they knew the culture of the Ammonites. But the children, they didn't even know the language of God. Did you pick that up? They didn't even know the language of God. They were not being taught Hebrew. They were not being taught the values of Yahweh. They were not being told the stories of the people of Israel. They did not know the language and the culture. They did not know the biblical perspective on life. They did not know the language of God. And if their parents would drag them to temple, then they couldn't understand anything because the priests would speak in Hebrew. And these children did not know Hebrew. And the primary responsibility of children is to disciple, of parents is to disciple their children. And then the secondary uh, um, teacher is the, is the teaching of the temple and the church. And children were coming in and they didn't even know the language of God. They didn't know the culture because they weren't taught the culture. I wonder, are the dots being connected right now? That we live in a culture where some of our children, some of our grandchildren, some of our great-grandchildren, they don't know the language of God. They don't know biblical perspective. They don't know the things of the Lord. They don't know the values of God. They, they, they don't know the stories of old. They don't know the sacred scripture. Nehemiah understood we are one generation removed from extinction. One generation removed. Not just to undo what Nehemiah had done for 12 years, but to undo some of the great treasures that God had given to his people. We are just one or two generations from extinction, Nehemiah says, so we cannot let this happen. Don't you remember King Solomon? It was because of marriages like this that his reign came to a downfall. And if God will permit the king to be brought down because of immoral relationships and marriages. If he permits it for the king, won't he also permit it for you and for your children and your grandchildren? Now, Nehemiah, um, he, was, he was frustrated with the broken promise of finances. He was angry uh, with the broken promise of faith by not keeping the Sabbath. I mean, in fact, he, he said to those that were sleeping outside the wall, uh, listen, if you do this anymore, I'm gonna lay hands on you. And by that statement, he does not mean he's going to appoint them as deacons of the, of the church. I mean, laying hands on them, I'm going to come out there and I'm going I'm to beat you. I'm going to come out there and I'm going to whip your tail in Jesus' name, all right? And so, so it took a week or two, but then they stopped coming. So, so he's frustrated because they did not keep the Sabbath. But he's irate because of the broken promise of a holy family. He is irate. He says, listen. Listen, it's one thing for you to mess up your finances. It's another thing for you to mess up your calendar. But don't go messing up your family. Don't go messing up your kids. Don't go messing up the next generation. You, you, you can't do that. And so he gets so irate, so frustrated that the scripture says that he begins to uh, beat some of them. He takes them out back and he curses them. And he pulls out their hair. Can I get an Amen. I mean, this is not your typical Baptist dude, right? This is not your typical Boy Scout. This is, this is not the typical person. This is not what we tell our children to do. But here in Nehemiah, I mean, he goes ballistic. He lays hands on some. He curses others. He beats some and pulls out their hair. Why? Because he says, listen, you are playing with fire. You are so negligent. Yeah, when it comes to your finances, and yes, when it comes to the faith of keeping the Sabbath, but when it comes to your family, man, God's design has always been 
a believing man marries a believing woman, and they have children that they introduce to the Lord. And that family unit faithfully ministers in the name of Christ. And it's that building block of God's family that a civilization rises and falls. So Nehemiah says, you, you've made a promise, but you've broken the promise when it comes to family. I'm sure that there were people who said to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, listen, you're as old-fashioned as Moses. I mean, don't you know times have changed? We're living here in the 5th century B.C. I mean, times are different here. You don't expect for marriages to last forever, do you? You don't expect just for believing men to marry believing women. You don't expect for this just to go on forever, do you? I mean, we're living in a different time. Stop being as antiquated and old-fashioned as Moses. The story I'm about to tell you uh, has nothing to do with anybody at this church. Okay? So now everybody's listening, right? This is a story and the players of this story, they, they don't even live in this state, all right? So I was a pastor. I was a minister of the gospel. Um, and I had a lady come up to me, and she said, um, Pastor, I, I have recently put my, my teenage daughter on birth control pills um, because I, I know uh, that she's being promiscuous, and I just don't want her to get pregnant. Now, to this day, I have no idea why this mother wanted to tell me this. Um, but in the moment, I responded to her, and I said, uh, have you ever thought about just telling her God's design for holiness and purity, that she's supposed to save herself for her husband on her wedding night? And the response this mother gave me, I will never forget. She said, yeah. I know what you're saying, but nobody lives like that anymore. Times are different. It was in that moment that I looked at this woman and her husband, and I laid hands on them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> at least that's what I wanted to do. Did you hear what she said? People don't live like that anymore. Times have changed. But God has not. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. His morality does not evolve. He does not change like shifting shadows. Who he is and what he has declared himself to be and what he expects of his people, it has not deviated. It has not changed. When I get done with Nehemiah, and I feel the frustration of the prophet. I feel the, the, the anger that he has for as he looks at the broken promises, for he sees the life of those believers and they're littered with good intentions and broken promises. Broken promises about finances. Broken promises about their faith and, and how they live life every day. Broken promises about their family and their children and how they raise their family. When he sees all of this brokenness, he just simply responds in prayer. Did you catch that at the end of every broken promise, he simply prayed? And the prayer always began, remember me, O God. Remember me, O God. Remember me, O God. Please, Lord, help us. That's what he's saying. 
please, Lord, help us. Help us to use our resources, our finances to your glory. Help us, help us, God. We remember the Sabbath and worship and the reason for it and everything on our calendar. And, oh, God, please, please give us your favor when it comes to rearing and raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Help us, oh, God. I don't know about you, but I, I walk away from Nehemiah and I think to myself, you know, at some level we need more Nehemiahs. We need more people who are prayerful. We need more people who are passionate for God's word. We need more people who are so practical in their implementation. But I walk away from Nehemiah, the 13 chapters, and I think to myself, you know what? Um, the life of the believer, whether you live today or in the days of Nehemiah, so many times the life of the believer is littered with good intentions and broken promises. I would contend that the people in the days of Nehemiah, they had good intentions in their finances and their faith and their family. They intended to live the right way. But life happened. Culture happened. So many demands were pressing in on them. Even in the 400s B.C. So many demands were coming at them and they caved and they had good intentions but broken promises. And when I walk away from Nehemiah, I think to myself, you know what they need? They need the same thing that you need. They need the same thing that I need. They need a Savior. It's not that they just need to try harder. It's not that they just need to do better. It's not that they just need to grin and bear it, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It's not that they just need to somehow give it the old college try. No, they need a Savior. And 400 years after Nehemiah, God sent a Savior. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, born under law, to redeem those under the law. In the very perfect moment, God sent his son and Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He came and lived a perfect life. For some 30 years, he never did anything wrong. He began a public ministry, a three-year ministry. He called together 12 disciples. Those 12 disciples will turn the world upside down. And Jesus taught perfection and he lived perfection. And at the end of 33 years, he was handed over to the religious rulers and they executed him. And all of that was by God's design. And Jesus stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with a cross strapped to his back. He had his, his body was mangled. His flesh was torn. He went up on Calvary's hill and he endured an eternity's worth of condemnation for you and for me. All of your good intentions were placed upon him. All your broken promises were placed upon him. And Jesus endured your hell for you. And he bowed his head and gave up his ghost and he died. His body was placed to a borrowed grave, and on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. He was raised out of rubble to give righteousness to all who would believe. So that when you believe upon Jesus, when you believe upon his accomplished work, when God looks at you, he does not see that you somehow do more good than bad and gain access into his kingdom. No, when God looks at you as you respond to him in faith, he sees the righteous innocence of Christ as belonging to you. That as if you lived out perfection, as if you were perfect in every way, in every thought, in every activity. When God looks at you, believer, he sees you as the one clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. It's not that we just need to try harder. We need a Savior. We need a Savior to save us from all of our brokenness and to save us from all of our good intentions. And friends, that is what it means to be rebuilt for God's glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Lord, today I pray that for somebody listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord,
that today that you will speak to the rubble of their life, that you will, that you will cut through all the good intentions and the broken promises, that you will say to them, I am your savior, I am here to seek and to save you. And Father, for someone here who needs to know you as savior, Lord, I pray today is the day of salvation. For others of us, for, for those of us who, who claim you as Christ, but Lord, we look at the littering of our life and we are littered by good intentions and broken promises. Today, help us to confess our sins to you. Help us to find your righteousness in Christ. And Father, if we need to come and pray, let us do so. Lord, we give you this invitation. We give you this moment. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.